Hi, it's Joanna Oki here and welcome back to the Deal Room podcast brought to you by our commercial legal practice, Aspect Legal. Today we're in for a treat. For the next two weeks, we have on the show Greg Savage of The Savage Truth, who brings to us a wealth of experience in understanding building businesses as well as M&A activity. Now, usually I don't go through our guests' bios in a detailed way, but today I would actually like to give you a little bit of background of Greg before we head over to hear the interview between Greg and I, because I think it will really help to contextualize some of the things that Greg is talking about if we understand the background to his story. Now, he talks a little bit about it, but I thought it'd be useful if I give you an overall summary first so you understand what to expect when we talk with Greg. So Greg has founded a number of businesses for, in fact, in the recruitment industry. And he's got a massive bio that, to be honest, is thoroughly exhausting to read, given the sheer number of achievements. So he started out with his rise at the age of 27, becoming a board member of what used to be the Hay Group. And then he went on to establish his first company, which he built up to eight offices, 200 staff and annual sales of $60 million, and then listed the company on the ASX. Next, he headed out to a role as the Asia-Pacific CEO of a large company, And 10 years later, he acquired a part of that business via a management buyout, which he then sold off three years later after building it further. So here already, we have a number of interesting elements that I think you'll find drawn out in the interview as we go through building of a business from startup to listing on the ASX, the concept of building a business and then buying part of a business as part of a management buyout, which of course is an alternative exit strategy for many people who are selling and also an entry strategy also for the people who are buying as part of the management buyout. Today, Greg is the founder and significant shareholder of one of Australia's fastest growing recruitment companies. So he's still on the ground today. He's still an active investor today, both in that company and in a number of other recruitment and HR tech businesses in and outside of Australia, as well as an advisor and director for 14 recruitment companies in Australia, New Zealand and Singapore. So out of all of this, you can see Greg has a lot of information that he can share with us in relation to growing businesses, and not just growing businesses, but also using acquisition as a growth tool, both the positives and negatives, and many other areas that are interesting in the M&A environment. So you can see why I was exhausted reading this bio. And of course, my first question for Greg was therefore obvious. So let's get to it. Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Are you ready? Okay, here we go. You're listening to the Deal Room Podcast. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on business sales and acquisitions. Get across trends in the area and hear the industry's best recount their real-life tips, traps, and experiences. Now, here's your host, Joanna Oki. Look, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you ever have time to sleep? By the sheer volume of your background bio, I don't really see how you'd fit that in. By the way, Joanna, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. My pleasure. It's very important to differentiate between PR and reality. <laughs> right. So I, uh, 
I have plenty of time to sleep and, and, and do other things. In fact, I would be honest with you and say this particular stage of my work life, it's as good as it's ever been because I probably work very hard for 40 weeks of the year and, and I do other things with the rest of the time. But as, as people who look at me and say, well, that's lucky, I say, yeah, that's luck built on 40 years of probably, you know, very, very hard work, like, like everybody else. I mean, everybody works to, to achieve what they're aiming for. Yes, yes. I'd really like to start by a more serious question. Mm -hmm. First, by running through a bit of your background and perhaps to start off by talking about the first company that you founded, Recruitment Solutions. That's the first company that you founded, yes. is that right? Yes, yep. that's, uh, it's a while ago. So, so what happened there was that I was working for a company called Accountancy Personnel, which this is a long time ago. And that company was bought by Hayes, um, which is now one of the largest recruitment companies in, in the world. At that time, Hayes was actually a, uh, a logistics company. They, they, they transported things around and they, uh, they were diversifying and they got into recruitment. Yeah, interestingly enough, they did so well at recruitment, they sold all their other interests and all their other businesses over a period of 20 or 30 years. And now they are, I think, in the top 10 recruitment companies in the world. Anyway, I was, I was the junior of three guys who were running the business out here in Australia, and they bought the business in the UK and, and the Australian subsidiary came along. We said to the Hayes guys, who were very nice guys, uh, people, look, we've been running your business here. It's very profitable. We would like to keep doing that, uh, but we'd like some equity in the local business. And they said, certainly not. <laughs> right. We, we, were, we were very na naive, I guess. They were, they were a publicly listed company. They weren't giving equity to some upstarts in the Antipodes, and they didn't treat they didn't treat us that way at all, by the way. But I'm, so I'm being a little making a joke about that. Yeah, but yeah. It prompted us to to start our own business, and when I say us, there was me and two others. I was actually the more junior of those three, both in the hierarchy of the company we'd been at, but also in years. I think I was only 28. But off we went into this great endeavor. I, I put fifteen thousand dollars. We all put $15,000. This was in the 80s, mind you. $15,000 to start the company. I had to borrow that from my dad. I didn't have $15,000 when I was 28. That's probably having like $100,000 now. And away we went on this journey. And I have to say, it was a great journey. There was a lot of learnings and the business did exceptionally well after a period of time and, and after trading through some quite catastrophic recession in the, in the 1990s. So you had two partners mm. at the initial phase. and. Did you start it from the ground up or did you start by the acquisition of another business? No, we started ambitiously in that we started with nine people, which was, you know, different to what most so, now recruitment industry is uh, an industry made up of, of some very huge global players that you'd all be familiar with, like Adeco and Randstad and others, Hayes. And, and in a few, very few medium-sized firms, and the vast majority are small, under 10 people. 80% of recruitment companies globally have less than 10 people. So to start with nine was ambitious, and we, we did. And it was scary. I mean, we paid ourselves a lot less than we had to pay our staff and all those sorts of things. But we, we didn't acquire a business. What we did acquire was some very good skills of people and some relationships that they had. And they all had relationships with us because we'd worked together before. And so we were able to get momentum very quickly. That was important, which we needed because we needed cash flow, obviously. And so then, you know, the end of the story for this particular first business is that you ended up growing it to be a $60 million company. I mean, that's a massive achievement from ground up. But what are the key elements that you think drove the ability 
for it to grow so large from, you know, a startup? Well, I think I think some of them were purely fortuitous. One of them was the three people. Now, now you're going to talk later on about acquisitions and, and often things go wrong because of issues between the management. The three people, we each had very different skills. We hadn't thought about that really very much, but it turned out as we evolved, one of them was a chartered accountant and, and he was very strong in the, he had more than just that, but he was very strong in the financial. Uh, the other, Graham was uh, exceptional with clients, exceptional with candidates, a massive ambassador for the business. He still recruits now, 30 years later, uh, and he's one of the most respected in, in, in Australia by far. And I was good with people and good at managing and good at getting the process right. And, and so that was actually, to help us grow, was very important. We weren't treading on each other's toes. We had a healthy respect for what each other did. So I think I think that, that was important. Uh, secondly, we treated our business, I think in retrospect, like it was a big business long before it was a big business. So we had processes in place. We had a board. Our, our compliance was very strong. We had structures we put in place, training manuals, and this sounds obvious now in 2018, but in 1987 for a recruitment company, not you know, we, we invested a lot in branding and marketing, which people, other people didn't think was important. We invested in technology earlier than most. And, and I think we were quite brave, uh, maybe brave, maybe stupid, but a bit of both, which allowed us to open offices in other cities. And I think we had a very strong ethos and culture. And there was a lot of, I mean, it was a tough place to work. People still tell me that now. They say, wow, it was a tough place to work. But wow, we learned a lot. In fact, I quite often stopped in the street by people. So somebody worked out that there's 67 recruitment companies in Australia and New Zealand who are now owned by people who used to work for me, which I take as a, um, as a kind of, so I like to take some credit for that. <laughs> Probably I'm, I'm due none of it. But I, but I am stopped by people in the street to say, wow, when you used to make us do this and you introduced that, we thought it was tough. But guess what? I'm doing it now, they say to me. Yeah. We realize now how important it was. So I think we were ahead of our time in that way. Uh, there was a, a big work ethic. But the other big thing, which is an interesting story, which might happen again, is that in 1990, and I don't know how long you've been around, Joanna, but in 1990, Australia had the recession that Mr. Keating told us we had to have. And it was a catastrophic recession. It is much was much worse than anything I've seen since. So to give you an idea, we were we were handling. I remember this because people used to fax me this every day, every week. <laughs> this was before the internet, and they'd fax me how many job orders we were handling. In other words, how many permanent jobs we were recruiting. And on average, in early 1990, it was about 200. That number is only important when I tell you by the end of 1990, it was 18. Wow. So that's how the demand for staff dropped. Wow. And, and our business survived. 60% of recruitment companies went under between 1990 and 1992. 60%, wow. right? The industry was decimated. So were many other industries. Our industry survived for three reasons. Number one, we had no debt. And I am a big fan of minimal debt, or if you've got debt, it's used strategically. You never get yourself into a position that if your revenues drop, by 50% that suddenly the bank owns you. So that's number one. Number two, we, we had a strong temporary and contract business. Now, this is very important for any business because there will be people listening to this who are not in recruitment. doesn't matter. The lesson is you've got annuity revenue. So if I've got a, a 100 contractors out working today on assignments from one month to six months, that is an annuity revenue stream. A permanent placement where I charge you a fee, Joanna, for placing a paralegal in your firm, 
that is a one-off fee and, and you pay me the fee and then you don't recruit for a year, I've got no more revenue. Mm, so you're talking about our recurring income streams. Exactly. That was the second thing. And the third thing was, and this was all due to the, 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 the partner who had the finance knowledge. I, I distinctly remember the meeting where I said, as the revenue started to drop and the, and the news was bad and companies were closing, I said, don't worry, guys. I will get the recruiters and we will sell ourselves out of this problem. And my approach was going to be, we're just going to go knock on more doors, talk to more people. He said, good, you do that. But in the meantime, we are cutting our costs. And we did. And we cut our costs by more than 50%. We, we had five offices already. Our business had only been going three years. We closed two of them. Our staff dropped from 70 to 35. I remember the day we had to ask everyone in the company to take a 10% salary increase. The three of us took a 20% salary increase. All admin staff were let go. Pop plants that were hired were wheeled out the door. And what he did that was, see, I would have cut cost 10% and said, and then I would have cut another 10 and I would have been chasing my tail. What, what we did uh, uh, on his prompting was we cut deep fast. And as a result, we traded at a break even for two years, which doesn't sound much, but it was a break even, whereas 60% of our colleagues went bust. And actually, I would never revel in the failures of anyone else or the misfortunes, but it is true to say that when the market picked up, most of our creditors were gone. Business grew dramatically from 92 through to 2000, and we listed in, well, through to it, we listed in 1998. And some of it was because we had been through the terrible times with our clients. We were still there, last man standing. Not quite, there were lots of others, but, but that, that, that was the lesson that I learned about trading through tough times. And we kept all our good staff and then, of course, those people who'd been burnished under fire, so to speak, who, who traded through that tough time. When the market picked up, they were like kids in a lottery shop. They were better than anyone else, well, better than any of their competitors. And they were grateful for the, for the, new, the new world. And they were highly, highly successful. And, and away we went. That's a great story. And so was there a lot in that that then provided the backbone for you moving forward in all of your other ventures? Quite often I talk to people, you know, when they, they feel that – Partly they've been made from their ability to, to work through challenges, you know, and, and I see business owners who sit there at the point of these challenges, and I think it's important for them to see the benefits that they can get out of the situation once they've ridden through it, I guess. Well, that's true. It's trite to say it, but businesses survive or thrive because of the leadership. You know, leadership is, is, is something that can be learned. You can get better at leadership. You know, there are natural leaders, you know, none of us are Nelson Mandela or whatever, but all people can get better at it. And, and I think what we learned at that time and, and was part of our DNA was you want to be successful in a people business. We don't manufacture anything in my business. It's about developing people's skills. Retention of staff isn't by paying people more or putting in a billiards table. You know, this is absolute nonsense. People have got to be fairly paid. They've got to be have the incentive and all that. But really what people are looking for is communication and clarity and fairness and learning. People want to develop. I mean, I've interviewed a million people in my life for jobs. And when you ask them, why are you looking to leave? The most common answer is, I feel as though I've stopped growing and learning. There's a lesson there for leadership. That is how you grow people. The second part is creating a high performance culture in a business means introducing an ethos of accountability. And that is lacking in so many businesses. In all our businesses, it's about accountability. It's, I believe you can't manage what you don't measure and you need to do that and you need to make people accountable once you've given them the tools. And then the final sort of leg of that is performance management. And that means if somebody is not performing, there may be good reasons for that. They haven't had enough training. You haven't taught them properly. 
They're going through a tough time out of work. There might be a thousand reasons that you will take into account. But at the end of the day, in a business like recruitment, where 70% of your overhead is staff salary, 70%, the thing you need to, I I see owners of recruitment companies agonizing over whether they spend $10 extra on their advertising. And it's good to to micromanage that to those costs. But that's not where the upside is. The upside is in the people management and the productivity of the people. And and it's long-term serial mediocrity of your people that will drag the business back. The flip side of that is it's your responsibility as a leader to introduce an ethos of coaching. And I'm not talking about training. Training's good, coaching's better. Where people are taught on the job and there's a constant ethos of improvement. And I have found that that gives you great profits. It also gives you great loyalty and longevity. Let's take a short break. When we get back, Greg talks about the process of getting his first company publicly listed and why listing is not the end of things, rather it's a beginning of sorts. We also talk about his experience as a buyer and how to really drive an excellent strategic outcome if you want to grow your business through acquisitions. And finally, we close this episode out with some rich discussion on the tricky area of earnouts. And that's next. This is Joanna Oki and you are listening to The Deal Room, a podcast brought to you by Aspect Legal. Aspect Legal has produced a number of great publications that provide some simple education in preparing businesses for sale and in getting ready to buy. These are particularly relevant if you're a business owner gearing up for a sale or, on the other hand, if you're gearing up for an acquisition. But if you're a business advisor and have clients considering a business sale or purchase, then e-books like these are also a great way for you to pass on information that's highly useful and relevant to them. At Aspect Legal, we believe that preparation is key. It's true in life and even more so in the M&A space. Being prepared will reduce your stress levels, reduce your costs, and even make the process enjoyable, as it should be. So be prepared and get the best possible deal. We have two eBooks available for you for free. The first is the top seven legal considerations in preparing for the sale of a business. And then we also have an ebook related to buying a business, a guide to closing the deal. To get a free copy of either of these ebooks, simply head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com or check out the show notes to this episode and find the download link for these free publications. We also offer the option of co branding if you'd like to customize these documents for your clients by having your brand attached to it. Just get in touch with us via our contact section on our website at aspectlegal.com.au. Welcome back. Earlier, we drew some insights from Greg's rich history in building his first business from being a startup to being a $60 million company while surviving the horrific 1990 Australian recession. Greg also drilled into the valuable role of leadership, people management and coaching in growing a business. This time, we'll continue the conversation and talk about Greg's experience first in getting his business listed after surviving a recession and second, as a buyer in a third-party sale. P, 
how long was it then until you then listed that company? How long did it take to recover and then for you to look at an exit through listing? I think the market started improving in 92 and 3 and we were grateful for that and you know, we took a big breath and revenue started to climb and, and we really emphasized the contracting to temporary business, which um, increased the value of the business and the cash flow. Well, actually, it has a negative impact on the cash flow in the short term because you pay your contractors before your clients pay you. But that's a small problem if you're funding it through a lot of permanent placements. It gives you a lot of muscle financially. And we opened offices in Melbourne and Brisbane and Adelaide and Perth and New Zealand. And I think it would have been about 97. We had a little bit of a away day in Hunter Valley, the three owners, and we had a facilitator, which I highly recommend, by the way, because you might know people very, very well, but that might be the exact barrier to honestly sharing where you're up to because you've been working so hard to build this business. Who's the first one who's going to say, you know what, I feel like getting out? (laughs) That's not an easy conversation, right? So with the facilitator, it turned out that, you know, the one of the partners was, I think, fully 12 years older than me. So his time frames and, and, and goals were maybe a little different. Anyway, the, the decision to consider an exit was was mooted and, you know, we'd had approaches because we were pretty high profile in a way and we were profitable, very profitable. But, you know, on a trade sale at that time, you may have got a, a three to five times multiple on EBITs. And, you know, we listed at a 10 times multiple and the share price doubled in a year. We'd make it a 20 times, well, Profit went up too, but you know maybe it was a 15 times multiple. You are never going to get that in a trade sale. However, there's a lot to be talked about in terms of listing, and I've got a lot of uh, clear thoughts on, on what that is like for a small business. And we were a small business. I think at that point we'd turn over 40 million maybe, making four, so quite profitable. I, I think in retrospect that we were too small to list because uh, while we did have institutional interest, they are looking for rapid growth. And to be frank, we listed with a clear vision to make acquisitions and, and to take that $40 million to a $250 million business. And I don't think we did that. Well, I know we didn't do that, but I don't think we were good at making acquisitions. And I can tell you why in a moment. But we did make some and we grew organically and, and the business grew to $60 million and the share price doubled. So a lot of people made a lot of money and a lot of people we're happy, but still, that is very small to be on the radar of institutional investors. And it's very expensive to be listed, Joanna. You know, it costs you a million dollars a year. Yes. There's a lot of compliance. And, and it's also good because if you go and see a company and, and you're, you're a listed company, that they do a lot more seriously. You get a lot more credibility. So there's that. But, you know, I, I personally was probably in my late 30s and it was a great experience for me. I was young. I was naive. And so I, I grew up a lot. But I didn't really enjoy having to justify to institutions or shareholders <laughs> why our margin had gone down 1% in Brisbane. I didn't like, you know, previously we'd made decisions over a few beers. Hey, let's open an office in Adelaide. I know this guy. And the decision was made. Well, you can't do that as a, quite rightly, you can't do that. You, you, you know, the business, we, we sold down most of our shares, but not all of them. So I think the business was 60% owned by the public. And therefore, the majority of the board were professional directors. There are only two of us on the board who were insiders, so to speak. And so they've spent a lot of time, you know, while those people brought excellent expertise and asked questions and tested us and all the rest of it, I found that hard. I think it's hard to go as an owner of a business to being the manager of a business you no longer technically own. I think that's a psychological, emotional challenge. And while there were many, many benefits, uh, financial, certainly, credibility, experience, networks, staff made money, Good for attracting people, taken seriously. All those were good. I wonder now. I would, you know, I've got a lot of clients who say, "What about listing?" And I say, you know, don't even consider it. You know, if you're a hundred and fifty million dollar business and you've got a clear path to half a million, half a billion, 
then okay, but there's not many of those in the recruitment industry. Mm-hmm. And and how long did it take you from this light bulb moment where you were all on the retreat thinking what should we do and then you came up with this idea of listing to to the listing itself? To be honest, this is a long time ago, but I think the retreat was probably part of a series of conversations. I remember it particularly well because the facilitator was so good at getting everybody to be uh, not honest. Everyone was honest, but to reveal their cards, so to speak. And I think it was then probably six months uh, and then a broker or a, a, you know, a, a institution, I don't know what you call them anymore, a company that took us, uh, managed the float. And that probably took a year. You got, you got a lot of work to do, you know, preparing. Get all your, you know, you, you've got to make sure your compliance is right. You know, you're going to go through a due diligence. You know, you're going to have people uh, looking under the sheets. There wasn't anything for us to hide, but you've got to get it right. And you've also got a massive amount of preparation around prospectuses and audits and all the rest of it. It took about a year. And so I think 18 months from, hey, let's think about exiting. What's the options to, to the listing? But you then stayed on after the listing, so it wasn't an exit from the perspective of, of you personally exiting the business at that point. No, nor was that my intention, and, and I stayed another two or three years. But And I'd say this to anyone thinking of listing. You know, I've heard people say, well, because this word exit makes you think you're exiting. Well, when you list your company, that's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. <laughs> yes, that's right. Because, because it's at that point that you've taken people's money, and they have given you money to see the share price go up. They have given you money, they have paid money for a share in your business for you to grow that business. So you are now not only beholden to shareholders and other stakeholders, you have a responsibility and they will stop you in the street and say, what are you doing about my share price? I mean, no joke. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was usually a pretty short conversation, but um, <laughs> that's just a dramatic example of how of what your responsibility is. And it's usually a, a sort of a five-year plan and, and then you can sell. I mean, in fact, I mean, I think, I'm sure we had this. Normally your shares are escrowed. You can't sell the shares that you've kept because they don't want people selling and going because you're the people who got the business there and you're the ones at that point best equipped to take it where it's got to go. Yeah. And, and so you said part of the plan was list, get capital on board, then make acquisitions, fast growth. So what went wrong with the plan? You, you mentioned before that you felt you weren't good at making, or the organisation hadn't, you know, achieved the optimal success from acquisitions. Why? What happened? It's all with hindsight and, and you know, if the other guys were in the room now, they might have a different perspective. But I think in, I mean, we did do, we took it from 40 to 60 million and we, um, the share price doubled and we made some small acquisitions and uh, I think they were positive. But I think, to be perfectly honest, we wouldn't pay enough for the good assets. It's a typical thing. You know, we thought our business was – my experience of people selling is that I don't think I've ever had an experience where someone who's looking to sell their business doesn't think it's worth more than it actually is. It's a bit like people selling their house. They all think it's worth more, and at the end of the day, it's worth what somebody would pay. Yes. On the other hand, we were wanting people to sell their business to us for what we thought was a fair price, but we probably wouldn't pay that little premium get the best deal. It's also quite hard when you're a $40 million company or $50 million, even if you've listed, there's a limit to the size of acquisition you can make. And you don't want to make a lot of small piddling acquisitions because they can be very time consuming and add very little. In fact, they can detract later. So we were an accounting recruiter mostly and we diversified. It would have been great if we could. I think one of the areas we diversified into was marketing. If we could find another big marketing recruiter in all our locations so who turned over 20 million 
If we could have added that and taken our 40 and their 20, which would have been 60, and then magically turned it into 100 through cross-selling, that's the smart thing. We weren't able to do that. Having said that, it's not as if there are a thousand candidates for that. You know, it's, it's a very small. So we needed to do something of substance, of scale. That's extremely hard to do. And we didn't do it in the three years I, I was there afterwards. I offer that as a very harsh criticism of ourselves. You know, it wasn't, we did make acquisitions. We did open more offices. We did grow by 50%, I think, you know, from 40 to 60. So, But I guess it's good insights. You, you know, you're sort of reflecting now on how if people are adopting a similar strategy, they might be able to pull even more value out of the process yeah. of using acquisition as a growth strategy. I guess that's really what you're saying. Yeah, I am. I'm saying you've got to look for an acquisition where one and one equals three. You know, if one and one equals one and a half, you're pretty much fucked. Or if one and one equals... <laughs> then it's not so good because, you know, acquisitions are littered with risk. They're very time consuming. They can have long-term influence on brand issues, on staff retention, on uh, data. There's a lot of things that can go wrong, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later. However, if they go right, they can be a very, very beautiful thing. And I have been involved in some that have, that have gone e- extremely well. And, and, and if we could have found something which was of, of substance. See, what you want to do is you don't just want to add revenue. You want to bring with this thing maybe entree to a new market. So in my example of maybe we could find a marketing recruiter, if we could have done that and then added to them our great training and our great um, technology and our brand, that's when one and one equals three. And that is how you make a lot of money out of an acquisition, particularly if you're public, because you know you may have bought that business at a five times multiple and the day you've bought it, it comes into your business, which is trading at a 15 times multiple. You've actually made a lot of money that day, let alone any other day. Maybe given you've brought it up, let's talk now about some of these greater success stories you've seen with using acquisitions as a growth strategy. So what have you seen work well? I was involved in one just the other, it feels like the other day, but it's actually three years ago. I'm I'm a um, founder of a company called People to People, which is an accounting recruitment business and well was now it's diversified. That, That is a success story. There were three people who used to work for me at Recruitment Solutions, the company we spoke at length about. And I helped them with money. And I think the best way I helped them was to give them the confidence that they would succeed. I've been on the board and a director for all those years, which is now 12. You know, we wanted to get into Melbourne. And the way we did that was to acquire a small business. But the key factors there were that the leader of that business wasn't buying to get out. She was buying. She was sorry. She wasn't selling to get out. She was selling to join us. And she she wanted to take her little business, which was good, and use our resources to grow something. You know, she had this dream of running the best recruitment company in Melbourne. And frankly, in three years, she may well have achieved that already. I mean, that business has grown from three people to over 20, from virtually no revenue to, I don't know, $8 million. And it's only the third year. And, and, you know, our EBIT margins are normally 7.5%, so something around there. So, you know, it's a profitable business. That was the perfect marriage of her drive her local contacts, my involvement with her as a mentor probably played a part, and then people to people's brand and technology and resources and training and cross-selling all the Sydney clients into Melbourne. So in that case, exactly what I had sort of dreamt would work has worked. If this webinar was 18 hours long, I could share with you all the ones that haven't. (laughs) That is where everyone's interests are aligned, right? So and she retained a shareholding in the local business. We had it as a separate business. People to people will acquire my shares of me because I took a shareholding in funding that business. And what people to people have ended up with is a significant business, their brand, and they'll own it all in a, in a year or two. 
And that's a beautiful thing. Uh, that, that's a very small example, but that is where it went well. But it took a lot of trust, a lot of compromise, a lot of people learning how to work together, uh, and a lot of belief in the future, a lot of effort from a lot of people. And it will make several people quite a lot of money, which is a good thing. I mean, money, money in itself is not the thing, but it also creates a lot of jobs and it makes people to people a much stronger business. Now that business turned in over $120 million and, and Melbourne's becoming every day a more significant part of that. And it sounds like an important element of that was the person who was the seller, you know, wanting to stay on and be involved and, of course, their skills in and of themselves in order to make the most of being acquired by a larger organisation. Have you seen examples work really well where, where you're also dealing with sellers that are ready to clear out? So in that particular case, yes, I mean, I wanted that deal to go ahead because I believed that the person was the right person and in many ways it's like a hiring decision. Yes, yes. Uh, but to answer your question, look, earnouts are problematic because by definition, almost always, on the surface, people think earnouts, everyone's interests are aligned. That They are not aligned for the most part. As a result, they cause conflict and tension. So um, a typical earnout might be that I'm aware of, and bear in mind, I'm not an expert in mergers and acquisitions. I run recruitment companies, but I have been involved in a lot of buying and selling of recruitment companies. And my experience is that earnouts, while you need them, if you're buying a business, you can't pay the full price up front. It's got to be looked at this way by anyone thinking about doing that. First of all, you think our interests are aligned because I'm going to pay you, Joanna, 50% of the, of the price on today's multiple of three times. And then in a year, I'm going to pay 25% on four times. And, and, and in the year after that, 25% on four and a half times. Might be a good deal. Every, you'd say everyone's interests are aligned because we all want to grow the profit. The buyer wants to end up with a more profitable business and the seller wants to get a higher price for the, for the second 50% of their business. Everyone's aligned. Well, it's not true. The seller has a very short time frame. The seller is making decisions if they're still in charge that may harm the business in the long term but increase the profit in the short term. In fact, you can, if you take, as I'm fond of saying to people who say, look, we can make more profit by cutting staff and doing this. And so you, can't, you can't shrink to greatness, mate. You have to grow to greatness. But if you're looking to increase the profit in the short term, sure, let's let four people go. Let's cut our advertising. Let's cut our marketing. Let's not send people on that training course. And uh, our profit will go up this year, which will improve my payout. But in three years' time, it'll hurt us. So you've got that interwoven conflict of interest that often exposes itself, not to mention the dynamic of personality and cultural misalignment and many other types of misalignment for that matter, which can make things go wrong. And I'm not being negative, but I am saying to you this, of all the acquisitions I've been involved in, not even to mention the many I've looked at from the outside, the majority do not go the way people expected and there is disappointment on all sides. Yeah. Look, and I think earnouts are one of these areas in the M&A environment that always trigger heated discussions yeah. <laughs> because I think generally, you know, sellers are generally quite concerned about earnouts, but they can be bought by the upside discussion. Quite often buyers, you know, obviously for, for obvious reasons, like them quite often, but we see a lot of risk. And we've actually got a number of podcasts, which we'll link to into in these show notes where we run through some of the legal elements of earnouts. So I'm glad you mentioned it. It's something that seems to come up quite a bit, but I think that's because it's one of those tricky, sticky areas. I think the, the way to alleviate earnout friction and sometimes fracture 
is I think you've got to understand that you are entering into a marriage of sorts, even if it's for two or three years, you're going to have to work with that person. And, I, and I'm fond of saying, you know, don't buy someone's business if you cannot stand being in the same room as them, because you're going to be in the same room as them. And there's some, uh, we bought some businesses that are small, where we've actually engineered just a six month earnout. I've tried to alleviate the earnout thing by, in some cases, um, paying the vendor for the results for the 12 months after they've left. That's a bloody clever idea, actually, because it means they leave it ship shape and they make sure that all the relationships are passed over to the staff who are behind because we've said 25% of your price is going to come in the year after you've left. So, you know, you've got nothing to do. You can't do any billing or have an impact, but you leave it in good shape. And and, and so there's those sorts of things. But the other thing... But of course, the seller then is always concerned, well, now hold on, I've handed over controls to someone else. They might run it into the ground. So really, I have to approach this assuming I'll never get it. Well, that's true. Although if you've got a three-year earnout and the first two, the person was working there. Right, yes. It mitigates the risk substantially. And in, in many cases, they don't have to work there and they're still getting money. So there is an upside. The other thing is, in the pre-discussions and the negotiations is transparency and honesty about what is really going to happen around the sorts of issues that normally cause friction. And they are brand. What's going to happen with my brand? I've sold my company to you, but my brand is important to me and my clients won't want the brand to change on day one. So there's so many cases of people saying, yeah, don't worry about the brand. And, and, on, and on day two, they've changed it. So that can cause real friction. Issues around performance measures and how staff are awarded, issues around what the vendor's actual role is going to be, how much autonomy they're going to have or not. All that is best, you know, those tough conversations, what a lot of people do is they sweep them under the carpet and say, well, once the deal's done, we'll deal with it then. That's not a great idea. It's better to have any difficult conversations and negotiations about that before so that when we get into it, everyone's not distracted by fighting about these issues. And they do end up fighting about them. Well, that's it for our first half hour of our two-part series with Greg Savage of The Savage Truth. As a quick recap, in this episode, we open the series by taking a look at how Greg grew his first company from being a startup business to being a $60 million company while surviving the horrific 1990 Australian recession. We also drew some wonderful insights from an analysis of Greg's experience in two different ways to exit, one being through an IPO and another through a third-party sale. He talked about his experience as a buyer and the way to really drive an excellent strategic outcome. And finally, we closed part one of this two-part series with a rich discussion on earnouts, how to alleviate the friction and sometimes fracture that often comes with it. If you'd like to hear more about some of the legal considerations with earnouts, head over to episode 12 of the Deal Room podcast with Liz Lee, who heads up our M&A division at Aspect Legal, when we talk about the legal tips and traps in earnout arrangements. And next week, look out for part two, which is the final half hour in this exciting two-part series with Greg, where we talk about Greg's experience in engineering a management buyout. And we also talk about some key concepts he has learned in the M&A space. And finally, we wrap things up by identifying the things that you ought to consider when getting ready for exit. There's just so much to learn from Greg, so please stay tuned for the second half of this series next 
Tuesday. And if you haven't already subscribed, then just hit the subscribe button on your iPhone or your favorite player and make sure you get the weekly tips from us here at the Deal Room Podcast delivered straight to your phone. But in the meantime, if you'd like more information on this topic, head over to our website at the Deal Room Podcast. where you'll be able to download a transcript of this podcast episode if you'd like to read it in more detail, as well as accessing some of those free eBooks we mentioned earlier. Also there, you'll be able to find details of how to contact Greg Savage, and you'll also find details of how to contact our lawyers at Aspect Legal. If you or your clients would like to discuss any legal aspects of sales or acquisitions, we've got a booking calendar and you can book in one of our lawyers to speak to for free. We've got a great number of great services that help businesses both prepare for a sale or acquisition to help them prepare in advance and to get transaction ready and to help guide businesses through the sale and acquisitions process. We work with clients both big and small and have different types of services depending on size and complexity. So as I said, don't hesitate to book a free sale or acquisition consultation if you want to find out how we might best be able to assist. And look, thanks for listening in again. I'm Joanna Oakey and you've been listening to The Deal Room Podcast brought to you by the commercial legal firm Aspect Legal. See you next time. Ladies and gentlemen. That will conclude this evening's entertainment. Thanks for listening to The Deal Room Podcast. To find out more about this episode and other episodes in the series, check out the show notes or head over to our website at thedealroompodcast.com.au. 